controversy this week. There was controversy and clarity all at once this week. And I would be remiss if I didn't get you to weigh in on it right off the top of the show. Screen door slams, Mary's dress sways. Yeah. I, I had been singing waves the whole time. I didn't know it was actually sways. I've said sways the whole time and I, I don't understand why everyone says waves. Dress, dresses don't wave, they sway. It's <laughs> like, I don't, I don't get why this is an issue. But I have, I have um, heard from many people that all they ever heard was waves and I'm like, okay. But there's the Starbucks lovers one, which to be fair, it really does sound like Starbucks lovers instead of Starcross lovers. It's the Taylor Swift song, like that really should be Starbucks lovers. It's not Starbucks lovers? <laughs> it is not. Oh my God, I've totally been singing Starbucks lovers. It sounds like it. She did not enunciate. Oh. She, the whole Mary's dress is just taking a big back seat all of a sudden. I've got a much bigger fish to fry. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 266 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Dear listeners, this episode finds its way to your speakers and your headphones, and I find myself excited I mean, on the one hand, I have a new job that has proved to be truly challenging, rewarding, and dare I say, even a lot of fun. On the other hand, I've been able to safely return to a movie theater after spending nearly 500 days without. I was so excited I went three times in a week. But I'm mostly excited to have today's guest on the show, not only because she and I go back such a long way, as you'll hear when you get to know your enemy, but also because it's a rare occasion when I get to have her on the show to talk at length about a singular film. We're usually in such a rush to talk about dozens of award-nominated films that we never get to pull apart one single story strand by strand, which is a bloody shame because my guest today does that so freaking well. She's a contributing writer at Movie Phone, The Playlist, and Roger Ebert. We are across the wire to Los Angeles, California. Mariah E. Gates is here. How are you, Mariah? Hi, I'm very excited to not only be talking about just one film, but I am excited to be talking about this film. Oh, me too. Well, on episode 266, we will be discussing Zola. We will be flipping the record over to play the other side, but first we need to learn more about Mariah Elizabeth Gates. This is Know Your Enemy. All right, get comfy, folks, because Mariah's been on this show a lot. Uh, <laughs> along with the episodes yeah. I'm about to name, there are more appearances, and you are, I believe, one of the most frequent guests on this show's history. So we begin uh, in the 2011 Oscar episode that was number 27.5, back when I was doing point fives. We learned the first film Mariah ever saw in a theater was Willow. The last film she saw at the time was Sleuth. The worst film she ever seen is something called Undiscovered. The unseen classic or essential was Apocalypse Now. She's since seen it. And the film she wished she made is The Thin Red Line. On episode 51, we talked about the 2012 Oscar nominees. We learned the film she digs but nobody else does is Center Stage. The film everybody else likes that she does not is Babel. The last film at the time to make her cry was Now Voyager. In the movie of her life, she'd be played by Elizabeth Taylor. And the movie she was watching next was the 1949 adaptation of Great Gatsby. Next on episode 76, we discussed the Oscar nominees of 2013. Sounds like a trend yet? Good. 
We learned the film that made her love a film turn a corner is The Thin Red Line. Her first date movie was Catch Me If You Can. Her sick date was the 1994 adaptation of Little Women. The last film to leave her speechless was Amour, and her epitaph would be from As Good As It Gets, Good Times, Noodle Salad. Then, on episode 104, we discussed the Oscar nominees of 2014. We learned the film she really digs but never wants to see again is Amour, the film that genuinely freaked her out, is Eraserhead. The film that always makes her laugh is Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. Her favorite movie soundtrack is Adventureland. And the film she loves but seemingly nobody else has heard of is Valet Girls. Then, on episode 129, we talked about the Oscar nominees of 2015. We learned that when she goes to the theater, she sits middle, middle, dead in the centers if she can. If she could go on a date with any movie character, she would choose Gabriel Byrne as Professor Bear in Little Women. The dirtiest movie she'd ever seen, that was a tie. There was the experience of uh, being a young and watching Being John Malkovich with her parents. We can all understand why that would be weird. Uh, and then Blue is the Warmest Color. Her favorite black and white movie is Night of the Hunter. And the film that she likes, but nobody would expect her to like, and I can totally agree with this, is Lethal Weapon 4. Finally, on episode 192, we discussed the Oscar nominees of 2017. We learned at home or in the theater, her movie snack of choice is popcorn with nutritional yeast. Uh, the movie world that she would like to spend a day in is Pina, the Vim Vendors documentary from a few years ago about dance. Her favorite good scene in a bad movie, she kind of deferred, but she said all of Kevin Klein's moments saying Avante in Wild Wild West, which <laughs> not only is it her favorite good scene in a bad movie, but she declines to call it a bad movie. The most violent movie she's ever seen is Raw. By the way, I saw that and holy crap, are you right? And the movie monologue that she would like to deliver is the Gone with the Wind speech as God is my witness. So it's time for round seven, Mariah Gates. If you met a person who had never seen a movie, what would you show them? I would show them Cinema Paradiso because oh. not only not only is Cinema Paradiso a beautiful film in and of itself, it's a film about how powerful film can be. Mm -hmm. So in my thought here, it would both enrapture them, but also show them why other people are so enraptured by movies. It has been a hot minute since I saw Cinema Paradiso. I, I feel that came up on this show before. I, I believe my friend Jolie Featherstone brought it up and called it kind of a gateway drug to international film. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's one of the ones um, I saw pretty early on when I was realizing I had a lot of gaps in, um, you know, I'd seen a handful of like French films and like any pretentious, you know, 20 something, but hadn't gone much past that. And, and um, Cinema Paradiso was one of the first uh, Italian films that wasn't a spaghetti Western or life is beautiful that I had seen. Right. And um, I recommend the director, the long version. I think the shorter version, they cut out a whole section of his adolescence that I think is important for the story and sort of the director. And that's why it's in the director's cut. So hmm. I recommend the long version. Um, it's totally worth it. It didn't feel long to me. Um, and it's just it's just a beautiful film period. Yeah. Like if you love romance and if you love watching someone grow up and all of those things. If you love movies about movies, like it's it's not so meta like something like uh like Get Shorty as a for instance or State in Maine, mm -hmm. but it, it still has that component of you know a story that shows the love for the story within the story. So Yeah, and it's less it's less about making movies, even though the, the main character grows up to be spoilers, the main character grows up to be a film director. It's not 
you're not on a film set with him. It's not like day for night or anything. It's right. it's really showing how the movies saved him as a kid and saved him as a teen and how just the emotional things he went through, the only way to then process was to put it in his films and and um, make other people feel the same way that he felt as a kid. It's, it's a really beautiful film. Mariah Gates, what is a movie that best embodies your personality? I thought about this for a hot minute and I decided to say Adventureland. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, I love how confused everybody is in that movie and how honest it is about how hard it is to figure it out. Figure out not only what you want to do with your life, but also how to relate to other people. How a lot of people are just faking it. You know, Ryan Reynolds' character is just, he's just, he's just faking his way through. When it came out, I had just graduated from college, maybe a year out of college. And his character is a comp lit major. And he's like, I don't have, like, I have no skills. And I was a comp lit major. And I was kind of waffling because it was the re- recession. And I was like, dang, I'm this character. <laughs> and but by the end of the film, he realizes that, like, just because his plans change doesn't mean he's a failure. And right. I love that because, you know, every couple of years I've shifted paths and that's just, that's actually how life generally works. I feel like the idea of like 40 years at the same, you know, job is just not how it works anymore and probably not how it should have ever worked. And the movie's really honest about that. I know that this is a loaded comment, but it's it's got swaths of The Graduate interwoven into it like you get to that point that you've been just building up for for 20 years uh, or you know like 25 years and all of a sudden it's like well shit now what right and then yeah it's it's um it's what i like to call uh the post-college life crisis the graduate is kind of like the kernel like the first movie to really capture the essence of the post-college life crisis but there's a there's a lot of them and they're still making them because i think people still have post-college life crisis oh absolutely it's a rare person who like my dad knew exactly what he wanted to do when he was six he went to college to do that and he's been doing it ever since it's a very rare person that that's their story you know and and i think we need more like we have tons of coming of age films about high schoolers like realizing that life is harder than it seems but there's not a really all that many movies in the post-college life crisis sort of cycle. And there should be more because more people are lost than are willing to admit. It's the kind of thing where if somebody sees that, if somebody's feeling mixed up and they see that story, they're going to feel just that little bit better. It literally what happened to me, I was in grad school the first, I went to grad school twice, once for fashion design, once for screenwriting. And when I was in the fashion design program, it was the wrong program for me. And I was really stressed and failing and I didn't know what to do. And um, I actually cut class and went and saw this movie. I felt so much better about deciding that this was the wrong path and that I should just shift. So I always feel like that movie, it just has, a, not uh, not just the soundtrack, like the soundtrack also is just like all my favorite music. Yeah. But this message of the movie has really helped me like adjust when life throws lemons my way it's a totally underrated movie it's a very um uh very contemplated movie it's it's a little bit of a misdirect like when you look at who's in it i think the and the marketing really was like they really leaned into like 
um, from the director of Superbad, and it's like nothing like nothing Superbad. Like Superbad. No, it's it's a very different movie, and a much you know in really in reality, it's a much better movie. Uh, it, and yes. you're inspiring me to give it another watch because it's been it's been a minute, and I know I love it. So thank you for reminding it's, me it's to go back so to Adventureland. Very good. Thank you for that. What is a movie that you actually hated on first watch, but eventually came to enjoy? This is a great question because there is one very specific movie that for the longest time held the honor of being the only movie that I didn't finish watching. God had to have been 1819, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, Yeah. And it was called You Can Count on Me. Oh, yeah. And I I turned it off. Like, I don't know, 40 minutes. I just hated it. Absolutely (laughs) hated it. And I rented it because I loved Mark Ruffalo in 13 Going on 30, which had come out when I was 18. This is how I know it was when I was... 18 probably because he was in 13 going 30 and then he was in um eternal sunshine and so i wanted to go back and watch this movie and i knew like he had oscar buzz for it and didn't get nominated and people were like oh you should be good nominated so i watched it i could i just hated it it must have been maybe right before margaret came out or and everyone was getting excited and i was like you know i turned that movie off and maybe i shouldn't have and so i i um rented it again decided it was actually brilliant. One of the best movies I've ever seen about having a contentious relationship with your sibling, which I have a contentious relationship with my sibling. So it really spoke to older me. But on second watch, I was like, wow, this actually is brilliant. Everyone's great in it. It's got a lot of insights into sibling relationships and dynamics. And Laura Linney's amazing in it. It really turned me into a Laura Linney fan. I think I was just too immature, frankly, to get what the movie was doing the first time I, yeah. when I turned it off. So. I mean, it's part of why I ask this question and I, I do hate to admit it, but sometimes we're just not ready for a movie. Like whether we see it as a kid or we see it as a teenager or, you know, sometimes if we even just see it like before we've had certain life experiences, like we're, we're not in a position to really, uh, you know, have our receivers set to the right signal for what the storyteller is trying to transmit. Um, I mean, I, I even think about it, um, this is a, a much different example than what you were just talking about, but um, I, I bring it up because I know it's a film that you really dig. Um, I watched about a month or two ago, maybe three months ago, I watched um, Crossing Delancey. Oh, yeah. Which I saw as a as a boy like i saw that at like age 12 and i thought that i thought that it was absolute rubbish i'm like what in the world is this movie about now i watch it as a grown-up I'm like oh i know totally what this movie's about this movie's fantastic it's it, it's that kind of thing right like sometimes through no fault of the film we just come to them before we're ready i totally get it um i i i don't remember i know i've seen you can count on me but i don't remember it so i may have like not been paying as much attention as I should, but thank you for reminding me to to move that up that queue. You're you're basically like reloading my my <laughs> next like weeks worth of viewing. So I do think wow, fantastic. Um very good. Are great questions. These thank great you. Questions. This it's getting harder as I get deeper in. I don't even have my next guest is an eight timer and I don't even have an eighth round written yet. So <laughs> it's gonna be a sprint over the next week or so. Mariah Gates, what is a remake or adaptation that is better than its source material? Um, this is my favorite movie of all time and it is the 1994 Little Women and I don't like the book. I read, I didn't actually read the book when I was a kid. I just loved this movie. I saw this movie when I was eight. I was in theaters. I wanted to be Winona Ryder. It, specifically in this movie, but also just in general. I loved her in the 90s like everybody did. I was really upset that I didn't have brown eyes because she has brown eyes. But um, <laughs> it was a struggle. <laughs> as a brown, as a brunette <laughs> with blue eyes, it was a struggle until I discovered Elizabeth Taylor. But um, it was violet eyes, but it's close enough. 
Um, but I fell in love with Gabriel Byrne. Like I was definitely always attracted to older people instead of people that were closer to my age. So I never understood why everyone was upset that she didn't choose Christian Bale because I was like, he was a jerk and emotionally not on her level. And Gabriel Byrne was, what is your problem? Plus he's Gabriel Byrne. You know, I'm not going to kick him out of my house literally ever. So I read the book about five years ago or six years ago. I did not read it when I was a kid. Like I probably should have. I did not like the book. I just kind of suffered through it. I don't like any of the other adaptations. I don't like the June Ellison version. I don't like the Catherine Hepburn version. I didn't see the Greta Gerwig version because I didn't like Lady Bird. And mm-hmm. I figured I don't like the source material and I don't like the director. Why would I want? And I don't actually like- Saoirse Ronan? It doesn't work for me. She doesn't work for me. Oh, wow. But the 1994 version, I think, is just a perfect movie. It, I love it. I watch it like 10 times a year. I've probably seen that movie like 300 times. Right. It's it's It's- probably the movie i've seen the most uh, this may surprise some people considering my proclivities but i have never read little women uh there is a very lovely copy in this apartment uh it's a it's one of those uh penguin cloth bound uh editions mm-hmm. that you see that edition is beautiful yeah. it is it's it's great it's got like scissors all over it it's wonderful uh it looks great on our shelf next to all sorts of Jane Austens and uh, Rudyard Kipling's and Dickens and all other sorts. Um, I've never read it. It's just, it's, it's on my list. Um, my list is always long and there's always like a stack basically that just kind of keeps coming my way. So I can't, it's, it's funny because like, you know, obviously like your opinion is just totally valid and it's, it's not about like challenging what, you know, you're wrong. What's wrong with you? You know, it's not, like, I, I have no frame of reference here. And now you've just got me very curious. You know, I obviously don't know that version of the film as well as you do. I've seen it a few times. Um, I think I've seen the the Gerwing version two or three times by now. Um, but I'll, I'll be curious to kind of pick up on those differences because, you know, if nothing else, the world has changed since the writing of it in 1868, right? So yeah. how it is reflected and, and how it is adapted and, and what, you know, it has to say that maybe was always there in the original text or maybe is now being extrapolated. I, I will say that the original text is incredibly feminist in that it is very much about giving women a voice and women should be treated as equally as, equally as men. That yeah. is always there. It's in all the movies. What I don't like about it is that it is very preachy. It's ah. almost like a, a bunch of Sunday school sermons sort of stitched together. I will let you know. I'll, I'll, odds are pretty high I'll end up reading it before the year's out now that it's been It's a pretty swift attention. read because it, it was written for oh, yeah. aimed at younger people. So it's a pretty quick, even though it's a thick book, it's a pretty quick read. Good to know. Uh, and, last- and I will say uh, my friend Kristen She's listening. She absolutely loves Alcott's other other books and says they're better. Okay. I haven't read them either, so I don't know. But I she will... says they're better books, so who knows? Last but not least for now, um, if you could bring back any artist, any director, any writer, any actor, you name it, back from the dead, who do you choose and why? So uh, pull out your tissues, but I'm going to say Chadwick because... I feel like, I know, I feel like he, you know, he was such a great actor always and he did, he played the game really well and that he was not getting, because of the systems of systematic racism inherent in the system, right? He was doing these great roles, but he wasn't getting the attention because he was black. So he, he played the game and made himself like the biggest star in the globe, right? Through Marvel and then went back to doing these great performances because he had the cachet of Marvel behind him. Very, very smart way of playing the system so that he could do what he loved. And I think we were just getting to see 
him at a place where he could call the shots on his career. He was able to truly green light and get films made that that were worthy of the talent that he had as an actor and as just such an empathetic presence in the films. He made everyone that acted around him better. And it's I love the two films that he went out on. They were great choices. I'm glad he made them. He's somebody I would I would have loved to have seen him act for another 50 years. And it's it's unfortunate that we don't get to see that because you know that he would have just hit him out of the park left and right. It sucks. It would be like if you if you knocked Al Pacino out at like uh, um, Serpico or something, you know, right. it's like right. he would leave. It's not fair. No. And I think I think that's the thing is when it's someone who's younger like when it's somebody who's like under 50 or under 40 or or certainly if it's somebody who's under 30 you're really kind of sent for a spin because like you said like you're you feel like you they were just getting started you feel like they were really breaking out of that shell and kind of like leveling up like Chadwick Boseman was in a bunch of stuff before he became an A-lister and you know some of it is good some of it is just okay But what you're saying is absolutely correct. Like we were just about to see at least like 10 solid years of amazing projects based on the amount of goodwill that he may have banked up with one great part. And to all accounts, he was also just a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, And that, and that really sucks too, because it's like, I'm not that I'm saying like, if you're not, you know, you're a jerk, you should, you should die. But it, it sucks worse when it's somebody who is incredibly talented and, and incredibly feeling. Oh, well, on that happy note, uh, we're going to leave <laughs> this be for now until I get Mariah back uh, again. If you're a betting person, you can bet on next year's Oscars. But uh, hey, who knows? I might, uh, you know, might mix it up and get it for two reviews in one year after getting her for two reviews in the previous 11. Um, we have a humdinger of a movie to talk about. Um, come right back after this. The new slang for this episode is Zola. Uh, right after this. That's my ace. Shot is so bad. Walk into a room, making all these niggas mad. That's my name, that's my name, that's my name, that's my ass, that's my ace. Shot is so bad. All these niggas want, but they know they can't have. That's my name, that's my name, that's my name, that's my ass. Zola is directed by Janixa Bravo. It's written by Bravo with Jeremy O. Harris. It's based on an article by David Kushner and tweets by Zola King herself. It stars Taylor Page, Riley Keough, Nicholas Braun, Coleman Domingo, and Ariel Stachel. Zola is the story of Azia Zola King. That's Page, a waitress in Detroit who also happens to be an exotic dancer that one day meets Stephanie. That's Keough, a stripper who sometimes happens to be an escort. After Stephanie proposes that Zola dance at a club she sometimes works at, the two women hit it off. It leads to Stephanie proposing another idea, a weekend in Florida with her boyfriend, Derek, and her friend, you can't see this, but I'm using air quotes, X. Yes, he just goes by X, where they can strip at a much more lucrative establishment. Zola agrees, and it's probably the last time she'll ever agree with anything Stephanie says or does. Before Monday morning comes, there are shady contacts, nasty hotel rooms, threats, pleas, drugs, guns, broken promises, suicide threats, and yes, even a bit of money. None of it makes any sense, but we can't look away as the dominoes continue to fall before Zola's eyes. Zola is a story that challenges perception. 
See, we may perceive that we know what modern sex work entails or what sort of circumstances lead working women to sell sex in order to pay their bills. We may perceive people we meet in a certain light and believe them trustworthy kindred spirits. But the thing about perceptions is that they are only ever informed by what we can see. And the truth is, in a community, in a job, and indeed in a person, there is so much we don't know. And our perceptions are pretty much bound to be challenged again and again. Which brings us to Zola, a film that on the surface seems to be about sex, money, and the art of the hustle, but is in fact about much, much more. So pop quiz hotshot, how does Zola challenge perceptions? God, there's just so much to say about this movie. I don't even know where to start. I might as well take the ball and kind of answer my own question. The one thing I will say about this film and the way it challenges perceptions is it looks from the way it is sold and the way it is marketed as though it is a a, a sexy time. You know, like yeah. you could you could kind of, if you squint and turn your head, you can kind of see this playing as a double feature with like Magic Mike, as a for instance, you know, if you want to use the the stripper uh, double feature and have one stripper where it's the boys and one stripper where it's the girls. But the the perception of it being a sexy movie is bound to get a lot of people really out of sorts because it's really not. So it's not an sexy- erotic thriller. No, no, it is not. It is not there in any way, shape, or form to titillate, even though, you know, it drops itself into a world that wants to make its money by arousing and I think that's where it plays with you like that's where it kind of can draw you in saying you think you know what you're getting into when you put this movie on like I pity the person who takes a date to see this movie because they think they're going to get lucky yeah I think to your point one one thing that's really strong about the film and what was very strong about the the twitter thread and and why I think it's a great adaptation um is that it is it is less about the eroticism of stripping and and prostitution and more about the business of it. Yeah. And I don't know that most um films about sex work they emphasize the sex not the work and this film really emphasizes the work. These are jobs just like any other kind of job. And actually, I don't know if you've seen this, but I I just recently watched Working Girls, Lizzie Borden film. Have you seen that? Uh, no. I would love to do this as like a double feature. Working Girls is about a day in the life of a Manhattan brothel. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like an office dramedy about a bad day at the office. And I'm sure Janixa um, has seen this film. I'm guaranteeing you this is the kind of movie she's, she loves um, based on her other film. It very much is emphasizing sex work is a job, is an occupation, has its ups, has its downs and is not about eroticism at all. Unfortunately, how it's often depicted in cinema, or or it's depicted as something that you need to sort of be saved from, like a pretty woman or something. I love pretty woman, but it's problematic as hell. Um, <laughs> there's very few films that really showcase how it is work. Um, another great one is Jezebel. It came out about two years ago. and um, Oh, I love that those, film. Those, those three films, I think, Working Girls, Jezebel, Zola, if you showed that to like anybody who is still trying to moralize about sex work, is is trying to paint it as not a job, like show them those films. And if they haven't changed their mind, 
they're never going to change their minds. No surprise. All three of those filmmakers are women telling these stories yeah. and getting it really nuanced. It's, it's kind of like we're jumping straight to the other side. I kind of, I, I kind of love this. One more film that we could probably add to that bracket as, as a story of sex work told by a woman um, where it's on the workers and, and about the work yeah, from a few years ago, uh, Hustlers. And oh, yes. what I think is interesting when you put the two movies side by side is when you look at the class of the worker and the clientele, because they paint two very, very, very different stories of, you know, a similar type of play. Um, you know, like there, there's a there's a drastic difference in terms of what the hustlers are trying to pull off and what Zola and Stephanie are trying to pull off. But a lot of that comes down to class um you know when you're when your clientele are like three-piece suit wearing wall street guys what you are going to be taking away and the way you're going to be living off of that income is very very different and the kind of hustles that you may try to pull if that is where you what you want to do which is not to say that it is what you know a, a, the average sex worker does want to do because as we've established it's work you've got two different opportunities in terms of the client base that you're that you're tailoring to, right? Exactly. I do think both films do a really great job of breaking down the power dynamics of class. You tapped on it earlier. I love this movie. I really did not know what to expect. Uh, as I, like, I, and it's not just because I was on a high because it was like one of the first films I got to see after a year and change away. This movie, at its core conceit, should not work because this movie is maybe the first time a story is adapted from a series of tweets. There is a lot of ways where this movie could go wrong, but in terms of the way it frames the story, in the way it tries to sometimes reframe the story, certainly in the way it fixates on the look of the story and what it wants us to pay attention to and what it doesn't want us to get bogged down with, this movie is incredible. I, I particularly think that it, it is a strong adaptation in that you really do get Zola's perspective yeah. um, the whole way through, not just through the voiceover, but in the way that Taylor Page brings Zola to life and is such a reactor mm -hmm. in the film. It's just a really smartly constructed performance. I know a lot. A lot of the um, praise for it was was, Riley, was Riley's performance, and that's partly because Riley has yet to fail in my eyes. Everything I've seen her in, she's just knocked it out of the park. But she has the showier role, and I think almost always the showier role gets the more pray, most praise. Taylor has a. She has. She has to be, the viewer, right, and and the narrator through not just the narration, the actual voiceover narration, but in the way that she's observing everything that's happening. And she is so, so good at conveying conflicting feelings where she'll say one thing to the, to the people around her, but in her face, you can tell she's thinking something completely different, mm -hmm. but she knows that she can't show it. Right. And it's, I don't know how she does it because you, you see her trying to look blank for the people in the car and you see her saying one thing, but internally you can see her thinking something completely different. And it's such a it's such a layered performance and and so intricate on its interiority that um I could see why a more vocal, boisterous 
outward performance is going to get a lot more praise. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of how in a, in a comedy duo, the straight man doesn't, or, or the straight person doesn't get the kind of love that the the buffoon. What Taylor does with Zola, it's complicated. Um, I mean, the story itself is really complicated because it's not just watch this train wreck. An average person would watch this and may say, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? And you have to watch this because at every turn, she will put on her face and in her body exactly why she doesn't just leave, right? Whether it's she understands the very real danger she's put herself into or from moment to moment actually cares about Stephanie and the situation that she's in. Like, that's the thing is that on the one hand, she's kind of a pseudo stranger. Like they've known each other for a few days before this chaos begins to ensue. But you can tell that Zola is the kind of person who cares about her fellow human being and isn't just going to like walk out of a motel room and jump the first flight back to Detroit and leave Stephanie in this lurch. And that's, that's the fascinating thing about it is she puts that in her vocals. She puts that in her posture. She puts that on her face from scene to scene to scene. It's really to her credit that she's able to show that she doesn't necessarily care about Stephanie. In my opinion, I think she thinks Stephanie is like, she can't believe she got herself in this situation, right? right? She can't believe she got seduced by this absolutely in irresponsible person, right? Because they felt like they connected. But by the time she's so deep in it that she sees that if she leaves this girl, this girl might die. Yeah. This girl might be hurt. And this girl has a, has a kid, just like mm-hmm. she does. She's too good of a person to only think about herself, even if she doesn't even really like the other person. Right. That is a really hard thing to show. I have a great story, actually. I went to a movie yesterday. I saw Pig. And um, I was waiting for Pig to start. And there was these two guys. I was supposed to be sitting closer to them than I ended up sitting. I like totally did not sit in my assigned seat because I did not want to sit next to these guys because they were talking about Zola in such a horrible way. Like, I don't even, I can't even use the words they use because I don't think you would want to hear it on this podcast. But um, I think they completely miss what the film was doing in terms of its, its empathetic worldview in That's... such a way that I was... I, you had to get all, up and go, like, yeah. If, I feel like if I told you the words that they used, you would understand why they so fully misused it. I will say that before this guy started talking about Zola, he also referred to actual women in his life as broads. Oh, it's great. the first time in my life I've ever heard that actually done in real life. Right. Um, turns like, out there are people who still alive who, right. who call women broads. So that tells you probably all you need to know about this person. I hope he doesn't have a girlfriend because bless her, you know, <laughs> um, she's, she's in my thoughts, you know, thoughts but, um, to, to your point, I think she does such a great job through her body language of showing that she just like when they're in that really fancy hotel and, and they're in the situation that is not the situation she's, she signed up for. She, she won't go as far as they want her to go. She can't leave this girl, even though she doesn't like her yeah. she, at this point, she's like, you're not who I thought you were. I can't believe I got seduced into this, but she can't leave her. Let's you know, let's actually frame this. What you're talking about is when stripping turns to 
prostitution as you know somebody as nefarious as her her friend x is is want to push a woman like stephanie who needs the money um you know working woman uh has a has a small kid has a boyfriend who probably doesn't have a whole lot going on she needs the cash so when somebody is imposing as x says go do this she goes does this zola happens to go along with it and, and understands very quickly what they're what they're there to do on the one hand you can tell she just wants to leave. She certainly doesn't want to mess around with the guy who's coming for both of them. Um, although by the time he gets there, we discover, no, he's not. And that opens a whole other can of worms. She certainly doesn't want to be involved in the sex act. But at the same time, she is not going to leave this young, uh, you know, defenseless woman in the room with this stranger who's paying for sex. So she stands on the other side of the room facing the wall. And it's just such a powerful heartbreaking visual that bravo keeps coming back to and just shakes you like i i don't know how anybody can see this visual of a woman who's like i'm not going to watch this but i'm not going to leave this you know and face the wall like there's only so many times in your life that you're told to, to face a wall i don't know how anybody can look at that and just not be uh, you know as you mentioned just deeply affected it's a really powerful sequence that's the sequence that these these mooks were talking about in the movie here in such a distasteful way that i was like well you have no idea what you're talking about and also i've never heard such like blatant misogyny in the wild before <laughs> high praise awful. for use of mooks though i do um, lo- i do love mooks in, in I, conversation I've good work never, i've never seen a mook in real life before but i've, I've ever <laughs> there they were if ever anyone deserved to be called a mook, it was that guy. That sequence in particular, it shows what kind of internal character Zola really is. Yeah. And it, but it also shows how entrenched into late capitalism sex work has come. You, you can't remove the exchange of services for money from this this job. I think what the what the film does really well and I think Working Girls also does really well is is almost show that so like right now I'm working as a as a um freelance writer, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same kind of how much my an hour of my time costs, right? It's the same kind of exchange rate. For some reason this kind of work is morals are put on it and using my brain for writing isn't. And and I think it does a great job of really showcasing that it's the same kind of exchange. Just one is morally looked at, down upon and the other isn't. When they pull up at the like rat trap motel, okay. Um I feel like her concern was not just she might get scabies, um but that there's a certain safety net in a somewhat nicer hotel for women. It's just the likelihood of of being attacked in a place like that as a woman I think is much higher and and I don't think that she was all that upset just because it was like you know clearly there were like roaches or something I I think it really is like it's a safety thing especially when she's with strangers yeah I think maybe she were in a place like that with with her boyfriend and they were going to be together maybe a different story but essentially she's on her own Mm -hmm. in a very very dilapidated motel and and to that point, it her fears were right because you know the idiot boyfriend met met somebody she they should not have been talking to, and right. that's I think a different kind of fear when you're a woman alone. And essentially, even though she is with people, she is a woman alone oh, in totally this situation. Alone. 
So that's one thing that felt really, really real to me. You know, something I, I didn't necessarily consider when you when you frame it that way is like a couple of things is one that is certainly when you can sort of see the oxygen drain out of Zola, like the, the road trip down there, they've been okay. You know, the, the stops at the gas station, they've been okay. The, you know, lip syncing to rap music for like TikTok or wherever they're posting it. That's been all great. That wasn't great though. Oh, I love, that was one of my favorite parts where she is going along with it, but only like, I think that's the moment actually in the car when they're sing, singing along to the, to the rap songs that Zola right. realizes that she's, she, she's in trouble. Yeah. But yeah. then, yeah. Then when they pull into this dive, it's like, oh shit. She's not very well off, right? No. She's working as a waitress. She'd still go to a Best Western or a yeah. Holiday Inn. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, and the other thing that you mentioned with this particular spot is that something I certainly wouldn't consider if I was driving around is uh, there is not much removing you in, in this, you know, so-called room of safety from whatever the shit may be going on out on the street, right? Like exactly. if, you're, if, if you're on the ground level, I, I, you know, I think they're up one level. If I remember, yeah, they're correct. up one level, but yeah. even still, okay, great. You're one story above whatever the hell is going on, like right out on the road. There, there's a reason why those things are cheap. She does such a great job of showcasing her uncomfortableness, mm-hmm. not just, I mean, she speaks it a little bit, but like her body language completely changes the minute she sees the place. Yeah. I feel like I, if I were with a people that I had known for two days and that's where they took me to, I would feel the exact same way because. You know, you go to a bunch of with a bunch of strangers, and you're at a, ho- a Motel Six. Like Motel Six feels like they'll leave they'll leave the light on for you. You know, like <laughs> Motel Six feels a little bit safer. But you go to some some rat trap place that's owned by God knows who. It's like no, yeah, absolutely not. Um, no. I also like when she's first introduced to to X. Like she's expecting a girls trip, and then there's this large strange man, yeah, whose name she never hears. That's really terrifying. Um, this, I believe, is an interesting example of the female gaze in in several respects. Um, certainly, in terms of how it chooses to depict um, the bodies of these women, you know, when they're when they're marketing themselves, but I think also in the way it looks at the men who line up to be their clients, whether it's yes. the older gentlemen who are throwing money at Stephanie to have sex with her and show them, no pun intended, quite nakedly for what they are and how absurd and how, let's be honest, gross a lot of these guys are. And, you know, I'm sure in their head they think they've still got it or this is okay or whatever. And I'm not here to make a judgment about why they're paying for sex. I still I had a whole preamble about perceptions and I don't know them but the the reality is that when you just look at it in the cold light of day it, it does not look good right like either there there's been a lot of um stories told and woven over history it's like one of the oldest stories there is about you know the men and the prostitute and you know it's it's usually tarted up but when you look at it in in the whole the the cold light of this movie it's like this is not sexy also Interestingly enough, added into that, we get a moment very late in this movie that mercifully is cut off. In an, if it was in the hands of another storyteller, I feel like we would go another scene longer. But you get a scene late in this movie where you see a bunch of younger dudes. They have it to put themselves into this situation that they've probably seen in porn here and there. And they're like, well, we're doing this. We're going to like pay some money to some woman to do this. And when you look at it, you're like, 
holy shit, this is terrifying. Where that could have been played as something to, I don't know, titillate or or what have you in the in the hands of the male gaze. Here it is quite clearly something that is absolutely, absolutely. horrifying. Yeah, she shoots that sequence like it's a horror scene. She really captures how creepy Florida at night can be. Like the night scene when they're at the club and everything seems fine. The minute they're there, it it is like you are in deliverance or something. It is terrifying. It is lit in such a way that you're like, is someone going to come out and slash our throats? Like, what is going to happen? Mm-hmm. But instead of that kind of violence that we're used to, that, that that's like impending blood violence, it's impending sexual violence. And mm-hmm. it's a bunch of drunk frat boys. And I'm, I'm going to tell a story. Um, me tell a story. Shocking. The story does not end badly. I'm just put that preamble there. When I was Thank in you. college, <laughs> um, yeah, I figured it starts out, it sounds like it's going to go badly. When I was in college, a friend and I started out at one frat house and we ended up at another frat house because she wanted to make out with a guy. And I was a good friend. She left me with like eight drunk frat boys. Um, and I was like, oh God. So, so I paid beer pong for like an hour while she's making out with this guy because I figured if I kept them playing beer pong, they wouldn't attack me. Um, now, maybe they weren't going to attack me, right? Who knows? But as a, as a young woman, I was 18, I assume everybody is going to try to attack me because that's what men do to women, yep. basically, when they, when they can. And, and most men have proven not otherwise, you know? Like, there's, the amount of men who wouldn't take advantage of women is much smaller than I think men like to um, say. I mean, and, es- and especially like, in a situation like that where there's numbers and there's booze. Yes, and it was, I mean, I don't know. They were just frat boys, so they might not have been creeps. I don't know, but I don't, I... I basically, all all men, in my opinion, all men are creeps until proven otherwise, you know? And I I guarantee you pretty much any girl who has gone to college has had some similar situation that could have gone south really easily, but didn't, thankfully. And then a lot of of them, unfortunately, it did go south, right? Mm -hmm. So she shoots that knowing that that is the feeling that those women are going to have and that that is the feeling that women like me watching it are going to have approaching that situation and it does not feel sexy it does not feel like the fantasy version you feel the terror that they're in and the violence that they could potentially have and and it's another really great character moment for zola where she could easily just leave this girl and be like you know what i'm not putting myself into the situation but again she is not somebody who's gonna let this this clearly stephanie like she also just clearly has poor judgment she just she has poor judgment she doesn't know when to run she doesn't know when to say no she's not great at sticking up for herself and zola just can't leave her to the wolves she just can't do it and so she keeps getting in worse worse situations because she's too good of a person to let this idiot get taken advantage of in the in some of the worst possible ways and and it's so it's a great moment because you feel the terror but you also feel what a wonderful person Zola is yeah. to, to stick through it with this person that she doesn't even like. And, and captured in a way that wants to dispel any kind of kink or fetish or fantasy and say, you know what the reality is, this situation is scary as can be. Oh, and then, you know, kind of backing up, we've got like all the very older, very flabby, not exactly what you would call equipped, guys having their time with stephanie same thing there i I feel that the female gaze in the in that sequence is you know capturing that moment in a way that we're not used to um and capturing that moment in a way that is much more critical than than the scene you would expect 
Yeah, and it, it doesn't make it seem sexy. No. At all. And to go back to the mooks, they were very critical of this sequence. <laughs> and and I, I want to be like, have you ever talked to a sex worker in your life? Clearly you haven't. The reality, and a lot of these movies, it's it's played as if you have one date a night. Right. Date you know, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and that is not the reality for, for most, most sex work. It's just not. And they show this really unflinchingly in this film. I think it's important to keep showing that. Just like when, you know, in my previous job, I would have sometimes 15 meetings a day and I felt really exhausted at the end. It was brutal. It is exactly the same. What I dig about that scene too, like where it goes to the extra length, along with the fact that it you know, shows that no, it is not just one client tonight because you're not going to be able to eat that way, is the way that, first of all, um, X is actually surprised by just how much they hustled in one night when he comes back the next day and sees, like, the take. Um, But also the way it goes to make a point that in between all of these Johns, they basically need to reload. You know, they need to remake the bed. They need to strip the bed. Stephanie needs to do herself back up. In in the hands of another director, these are details that would be missing. Those are the same kind of details that are in Working Girls. I, I truly, truly think that would be such a great double feature. Criterion just put it out. She did that 35 years ago because she knew this needed, this story needed to be told. And it took a whole new generation of filmmakers to push through in the mainstream to have these same kind of stories told. It took 35 years of like pushing mm-hmm. to get society to a place where it isn't a micro film that barely got released by Miramax and instead is a whole swath of films looking at all the different aspects of sex work with the same kind of humanity. And and it's shocking that it feels as revolutionary as it is because it shouldn't have taken 35 years to have a bunch of these films. And and then to factor in race, um, Working Girls does a little bit of that, which is is great to its credit, but this is really critical on the way that race plays into it as well. You know, there's this exotic mystique of what men think it's like or what men think they are going to get or what men think that they are entitled to when they, when they pay for sex. And I think that movie, I think those things are wrapped into this movie as well. Like the way they can talk and the way they can act and everything, just because they happen to be handing over money. And it's like, you know, you (laughs) think, Think about that for a second. You are handing over money for this. Like you are, you are not actually in a position of power. The customer is always right, maybe except in this case. This is a movie that is based on a series of tweets. And it's a movie that seems to be very much sprung from the well of social media. You can hear the clicks and the chimes and the swishes in the soundtrack and you would actually think that that would get annoying and yet for some strange reason it seems to always work it really does she incorporates the way that social media rhythms Mm -hmm. work in our daily lives Mm -hmm. really well i think a lot of films ignore social media like it still feels shocking when you're like oh wow they put tweets in this movie but it's like so many people are, are tweeting and or at least texting. If you're not tweeting, you're definitely texting unless you're my parents who don't know how to use a phone. Uh-huh. Um, if you're te- telling a, a story about anyone under the age of 40 and texting and tweeting is not part or Instagram stories or something is not part of the story, you're not doing a full portrait of what modern life is. And, and this film does a great job of introducing it without it becoming um, like a shtick. No, yeah, it's it's, ne- it's never a gimmick. Like, I do love that they t- 
texts, the way they talk. Both Stephanie and Zola speak their texts out loud. It's not the kind of movie where you just see the graphic on the screen. They actually say what they happen to be typing into their keyboard. Zola as well has that just oversized case for her phone that's like, I think it's a bunny or something like that. You know, like these kinds of details about how their phones are very, very central in their lives for how they're living it. If you play this wrong, it becomes a gimmick and and it could become quite dated. But I think the reality is that for the way these women communicate, not just with each other, but with, you know, their entire circle, um, you're right. If you don't include their phones and you don't include these alerts and these platforms, then you're not painting a picture of these two women in in 2020. The way that they connected, which I think is also really fascinating about both the original Twitter thread and the way it's presented in the film is that, you know, they had a moment in the restaurant where they felt, you know, some rapport. Yeah. And then they go out together and then the rest of the relationship before they they take this crazy road trip is texting. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting you know, thing that I don't know that cinema has quite caught up to about um, the way that people connect over the internet. So like, we're a great example. We knew each other for almost 10 years before we actually met, but we'd known each other for 10 years. Like, that's crazy. There are people I've known, you know, for less than that than we happen to have geography so we can actually meet. Whereas our our problem was I was on the West Coast, you were in Canada. I think there's an intimacy that your brain thinks you have from from constant communication via text, mm-hmm. via tweets, via whatever, that isn't as real. It can be real. So some of my best friends are people I met, mostly from Tumblr, to be honest. Tumblr was a great place. There are people, I think, that have been following me on Twitter for a decade that consider me a friend, and I think of them as like an acquaintance. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because you you don't necessarily know what the other person's really thinking, even if the texts are very enthusiastic. And and there's so there's like a false intimacy that the internet and that texting has created. This story is a great uh, cautionary tale about those false connections. Because when Zola starts out on this journey, she thinks she really knows this girl. She's really connected with her. Right. But the minute she's actually spending real time with her, she's like, like, that's why I love the sequence in the car where she starts to really see the real Stephanie. And she says you know, cool or whatever, but her face is not saying cool. Right. You know, her face is saying, why am I in this car with these people? Oh my God. What have and, I done? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just so wonderfully well done. Such a really interesting way of tackling that facet of contemporary internet culture and, and tech culture. One would worry that it might date the film, but I don't believe that that's going to date. The, the film itself is a snapshot. This is not the kind of film that is looking to transcend time and era. This is a film that really, really wants to plant itself in 2020, 2021. Like it was made last year and intended to be released last year, um, came out this year because, hey, reasons. Um, But it's a film that really wants to talk about life in this moment. And like you say, what what it's like to connect in this moment. Like you can tell that's kind of why they don't want to put down their phones because there's all these other connections that are in this device that aren't in the room with the person they are in the room with. And what could they potentially be missing beyond the fact that their phone is quite clearly the device that they use to set up their enterprise? Yes, absolutely. And and I think to your to your point about it being a, a 
time capsule. It's it really is even more so than you know it's coming out in 2021. It's set I think in what 2017 ish 2015. That was the literal rise of of a lot of these apps. So like Facebook already existed, Twitter existed, Tumblr, but like 2015 was really the rise of Instagram. It was yeah. the rise of rest in peace vine it was the rise of because oh, i think they're watching a vine a bunch of times in that right, movie right. which i thought was hilarious like rest in peace vine but um it was the rise of using apps for dating and it does a great job of showing how with the rise of smartphones because the first smartphone was 2010 2009 mm-hmm. 2010 and by then you know by 2015 you really have the rise of like app culture yeah yeah they're they're at at that stage in history they're they're much more ubiquitous yeah and and it does a great job of showing how much of all of their lives every aspect of their lives are monitored via the phone even when they're in the apartment when she's her her boyfriend's doing something else on his computer i think and she's like on the couch texting with stephanie and it's like even even at home you're on your phone the life is the phone it does a great job of showing both positive side and the downside of how much of our lives are, are lived using the phone, which is why I love that bit. And they use it in the trailer too, where she's like, from this moment on, you know, don't believe anything she says and watch her closely. That's an, I think a really great moment where Zola finally realizes she needs to get out of her phone. And also. pay attention. Yeah. By the time this episode goes live, this movie is going to be on demand and people can watch it from the comfort of their couch. But odds are, if you're watching it from the comfort of your couch, you're going to be, kind of casting an eye on your phone and you're gonna miss shit and that's yeah. that's one of the reasons why i was actually really happy that i i made a point to go out and see this in a theater because i didn't want to be tempted by my phone i wanted to be in the dark room wanted to be in it wanted to be like on this crazy adventure with these people you know just kind of before we tie things off here because i think we, we we've talked about a lot about this movie and i think that's the crazy thing is for a 90 minute movie there is a lot in this there's movie a lot to, talk to say about. we didn't even get to the idiot boyfriend you well know? that's what i was gonna say I was gonna, so so in, in amongst all of this you know very scary very you know female gaze very um um code switching uh craziness that drives this movie off to the side, we have Derek. Um, Derek bless, played- Bless his heart, bless his heart. Yes. Derek played by Nicholas Braun, who most people know as Cousin Greg from Succession. Succession, just in case anybody listening hasn't watched this show, it is a show about a family of rich assholes competing to be the most assholeish to each other. And in the middle of it all is this one actually- good-hearted cousin who finds himself in the middle of things. Nicholas Braun plays that guy. He plays this guy, Derek, who is Stephanie's boyfriend. Uh, He is basically the ride-along on this trip. He serves no purpose, uh, except for the fact that he is probably just smart enough not to send his girlfriend off to Florida for God knows what, his his piece in this whole circus is amazing. He's very funny in this film. He's not a name or a fate. Like I'd seen Taylor oh. Page in multiple things. Um, yes. Which, by the way, I, I um side note, I finally saw uh, Gina the Joneses, which I know is oh, a film good. that you like praised a lot, and I, yeah. I got to see it last year, and I, you were completely right. It's amazing. She's so good in it, and obviously, I love Riley Kyo and Coleman Domingo. Um, but I did not know this actor at all and um, absolutely loved him in this. He's such an idiot. He He's like Zola and then he knows that this is not good and that things are hinky and that they shouldn't be leaving him behind in a, in a hotel with no food and guard, guarding their stuff. And But he's not smart enough 
again, like Zola, to know how to navigate out of the situation. He's like a kind-hearted dude. He just keeps trusting people in ways yeah. that he should not be trusting people. No. And and he gets himself in worse and worse situations. And yeah. you're like, my dude, stop. <laughs> like, just go back yeah. to the hotel room. Yeah, just every turn, like every time he can make a decision, it's the wrong one. It's the wrong choice. Yeah, he's just, at a certain point, you can tell that he knows he's made a very wrong turn. I don't I don't want to spoil too much, so I'm going to be vague, but... Yeah. um the very last thing that he does <laughs> and and he botches it so magnificently uh-huh and if it hadn't actually happened you'd be like wow this there's no way this would have happened but it happened yet, yeah yeah it really happened yeah and and it's a very florida man even though he's not from florida but it's a man in florida doing it it's a very florida man thing to have botched the way that he botches it right and and you shouldn't be laughing because it is kind of horrendous but at the same time you're like man, of course that's how this would go down with him. Yeah. Like, there's no other way for that situation to have a different outcome. And it's 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 timed so perfectly and it's such dark mordant humor. I mean... Um, I really loved the way that was that was um, calibrated. What I ended up asking myself, and, and you know, I, I, gotta, I gotta like tip my hat to the stylist of this movie because he is dressed as such an idiot. He's got like such yes. a terrible chin beard. He's oh, wearing a bad. backwards baseball cap and clothes that don't fit and are about like five years too young for him. But but what I what I remember just thinking so deeply, Derek and uh, Stephanie have this little sweet exchange of whose is this? And they point to their heart and whose is, you know, it's mine. This one's yours. I remember just thinking about that. I'm like, okay, uh, she's got your heart. Who's got your brain? Because it's clearly yeah. not in your head. <laughs> and that's Aww, the thing. Like, this movie, like that, I think that's part of the genius of this movie is, is that it should be so dark and so dreary and so terrifying. And yet in the background of it, you have like ex's girlfriend who really doesn't talk, but she looks like she could, you know, like break melons with her biceps and and Derek doing doofy things in the background. Like just, just, just you know, it throws you a bone and says, yeah, we know that you're not enjoying this as much as you thought you would when you thought you were getting going to be getting some like dirty little movie. So here's something to laugh at. I don't know if you've seen any of Bravo's other films. I, I think at this point I saw, I saw Lemon at its premiere at South by. And I, I think I've seen all of her shorts or if not 90% of her shorts. Yeah. And watch my letterbox <laughs> feed because they're probably all going to show up in very short succession. A lot the, of them are on the, criterion. She's just got a really good eye for the ways in which white people in particular are just nuts. And, um, it's unflinching and I, I, I don't think that she's ever cruel about the way that she like puts white people in the funhouse mirror all the time. If, if anyone should actually make a Karen movie, it's her because <laughs> she completely understands why a Karen would becomes a Karen. She I gets totally it. Watch that movie. She's very observant of the way in which like white panic happens. I'm in. Like I I, I I'm a big fan at this point. I wanna see so much more of what she's done. The only other thing that I know I've seen for sure is her episode of Atlanta. Um, oh, I, yeah, which is like the best episode of the show. So, yeah. Well, I mean, we could have a whole other podcast discussing which episode of that show is the best. Um, she's so good. But she is. It, it's an amazing episode. It's the Juneteenth episode, in case people don't know. Zola by Jenixa Bravo is out right now. We obviously both love this movie. Um, we do end with a souvenir. It was actually hard for me to pick a souvenir on this one. Um, something tangible 
tangible or intangible, if you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Mariah Gates, what would be your souvenir from uh, Zola? I, I want to take Taylor Taylor Page's uh, facial reactions. Just oh yeah, I she is like her 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 face. Yep. When she's watching people, like I haven't seen a movie all year where I was so transfixed with just how somebody emoted from their gaze. So that's I what I would keep. Do not miss working in an office, but I would love to work in an office with Taylor Page. I can only imagine what I would see like across the room or in a boardroom. Yeah, she, like, she would be able to like you would look at her across the table and she would tell you like you'd have a whole conversation yeah, just yeah. from her face. My souvenir is something much more materialistic. I want that that condo uh that that they all go to oh, in the yeah. end where Z happens to be living. It's like after 80 minutes of just going from CD place to CD place to CD place, all of a sudden you go to some place that's actually nice. I'm like Oh man, that looks great. I, I, I don't consider myself somebody who's really like drawn to fancy, you know, or to upper class, but just all of a sudden after going like motels and shitty little strip bars and Lord knows that like murder shack out in the backwoods, I was like, yeah. oh man, I just, I want to, I want to watch a story here for a week. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's an incredible set. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Mariah Yates, what do you give? I'm Zola? gonna say three. I'm gonna say three point five. I can't quite give it a full four. Oh man! Because I hold the full four for like handful of things, but okay. I would say it's it's almost perfect. If we have this conversation again at year end, you may want to up the up the score. It it might change. I don't okay. know if there's a lot of movies I got to revisit it. I I am at a four. This is absolutely one of the best movies I've seen this year. Um, I, I really did not know what to expect going in, but whatever I thought I was going to be getting, this was not it. Um, and I say that in a great way. Um, I, I love being surprised. I love seeing something fresh and something new. And this movie has a lot of things to say in a very very economical package, um, and and completely defies expectations. Um, as I said, if you if you're thinking you're going to put this on and, and you know, and, and like Netflix and chill yourself, that is not a good idea. But it is worth seeing for sure. Uh, Zola is out now. Um, hey, maybe you hated this movie. Uh, maybe you love this movie even more than we do. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, Ryan matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Zola? We are going to take a very quick break and come back right after this with a few more movies on the other side. So uh, don't go very far. She's Mariah Gates. I'm Ryan McNeil. We've been talking about Zola. It's Matinee Cast 266. Uh, it's, um, you know, new releases again in a theater. It's exciting times around here on the Matinee Cast as we uh, start winding down another season and preparing for our September break. Um, it's the other side. It's the part of the show where we talk about further reading, more reading, going further down the spiral, um, and, and picking companion films. We've already talked about a lot of them. Um, Mariah, why don't you get us started? Uh, you know, we we have touched upon one an awful lot, so we may as well officially yeah, make it. The the first one um, I brought up, I guess probably if you took a shot every time I brought it up, you'd be wasted by now, is uh, Lizzie Borden's Working Girls. It was just released uh, um, by Janice. It was in theaters in the spring, and um, Criterion put it out on Blu-ray maybe two weeks ago as of this recording. It's stunning. Takes 
a really hard look at the work in sex work set in a, in a Manhattan brothel. Uh, it's you kind of follow basically one character from when she wakes up to when she goes home. And it's it's just one really bad day at work that isn't completely bad. It's not like trauma porn or anything. It ebbs and flows, but it's like one of those work days that just will not end. But you also, through the work day that will not end, see all of the other elements that are stressful within the world of sex work. It's just really well made. I think Lizzie Borden shot it over a couple of years. Every time she had $10,000 or something, she would like (laughs) shoot another couple of scenes. I think the only thing so far that I've seen by Lizzie Borden is Born in Flames. She, I I feel like those are her main films. She doesn't have an extensive, yeah, she doesn't have an extensive filmography. So you don't feel bad. And Working Girls was out of print, hard to find, early, early Miramax, and they kind of buried it for a very long time. Well, I will will be trying to track this down now. We should also, by the way, clarify that we are talking about Working Girls, not Working Girl. Yeah, not Working Girl, Marini. It's a very different movie. (laughs) Don't get those mixed up. Uh, Around the same same time. The first movie, I I, I think, would make an interesting companion film for this movie, and uh, not exactly in a good way, um, but certainly in kind of a, a, a light and dark comparison, is I think this movie marries up really interestingly with Spring Breakers. Um, mm. Harmony Corinne from 2012, um, James Franco having his little look at my shit moment. Uh, Franco was supposed to direct Zola, which, my God, would this movie be very, very different? Uh, if he had have actually gone through with his plan, um, both set in Florida, both movies that have sex on the brain. Um, but Spring Breakers, like as much as it wants to be this satirical, commentative critique of something, still lends itself like so bloody deeply to the fantasy and the male gaze, you know? Like, I, I, I do appreciate that it wants to contrast what the average uh, sophomore and freshman goes through when they think they're getting away and really having a great big, huge party and what the reality of, of you know, partying in Florida actually is. Yeah, I think that's a really astute double feature. It's another H24 yeah. wild time in Florida. Um, Zola never leaves and... No spoilers to spring breakers but eventually it gets too tough for a lot of those girls and they they balance oh yeah um which i think is accurate to i mean if i were at the age they were and i got in those situations that they got into i would also be crying and getting begging my parents to buy me an airplane to get out and i mean it's it's funny because what I, the other thing i like about it as, as a comparison is it's an interesting way to look at evolution because when spring breakers dropped in 2012 and and you know everybody kind of had that moment it was hey look at this like look at this movie that that really kind of takes expectations and turns them on their head and has something to say and it's not just like i mean this thing seemed to be sold as like girls gone wild and you know if, if you were to watch the opening five minutes of it you'd think you were getting something very very different 10 years later along comes a movie is like oh yeah you think you're saying something clever sit down because I've got something way more clever to say than you. You know, that's, this is kind of what I love is to see the evolution of these topics as more voices get their chance at the mic. I think that's a really astute way of comparing the two films. 
I think they'd make an interesting double feature. Uh, you know, one may like one more than the other. And and they, they, listen, I, I guarantee you there are people who are probably going to Zola thinking that they're getting Spring Breakers again and they get let down and that's unfortunate, but it's it's their, their you know, their experience. There are two movies that have similarities but take very very different paths um on their story what's another film that you had yeah the other film that i would i would add to it is another riley keogh film um american honey which oh yeah um yeah i love american honey i don't be uh, scared of the three-hour runtime people are dumb if they think it was too long it ended and i was like wait it's over like I did not feel the passage of time in that movie. It's not like John Thielman where you feel it. It's like three hours and suddenly you're like, wait a minute, three hours went by. I can't even believe it. At least that's how it was for me. I, when it was over the um, guy at the, at the movie theater, I saw it at, he's like, I just thought that movie was too long. And I was like, I can't even believe it ended. <laughs> like I had such a different experience. Um, Cause I, I loved every beat of it, but Riley had, plays a very, I don't want to say similar, but in the same vein, like could go really south, really fast depiction of like, for lack of a more PC phrase, white trash woman in um, American Honey. She is a very powerful person. She understands her strengths. She is not easily duped the way that uh, Stephanie is. She is she is the one doing the duping. Like basically she's ex in that mm-hmm. situation. Totally. Um, but what I, what I love about it is that um, between the two, the two performances, um, she walks a very tight rope of, of bad taste. Yeah. And she never falls on the, the wrong side of it. She's never, she never feels like she's making fun of these kind of women. She never feels like she is empathizing too much with them. They feel fully realized. They feel like real people and they feel like, she completely gets their psyche and why they behave the way they behave. And I'm actually not sure where Riley grew up, but obviously for those who do not know, she is Elvis's granddaughter. So she has roots in the South and in poorer aspects of the South. Now, obviously being Elvis Presley's granddaughter, I don't think she grew up poor, but I think she probably has some, some insight based on where her family is from to this kind of, white woman and she manages to really showcase it in both of these performances there's a lot of empathy like she's not trying to get you to sympathize with these with these women and with the choices that they make and you know with with the way that they especially in american honey with the way they treat other people but Mm -hmm. she does want you to see why they are the way they are what choices they've made in their life how they've got to this point um and American Honey, I mean, first of all, I think you might be the first other person I've talked to that actually likes this movie. Usually when this movie comes up, uh, people run. I love this movie. That was one of the best think, movies I saw that year. I think it year. was my second. I think it was my number two Yeah, it was. In, I know it was in my top five. I think I'm it was pretty, like, I think it was like number sure three. I'm pretty sure it was number two. Or something yeah. like that. But um, I, I talked about how it was just an amazing look at an amazing at a part of america that doesn't always make it onto film um i saw this i saw this on an imax screen of all things like i I saw this square cropped really claustrophobic movie you know six stories tall on an imax screen it was a really crazy experience it's long it doesn't exactly have a whole lot of really famous people in it and you're kind of claustrophobically jammed into the back of a car for a lot of movie for a lot of it 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 feels like a singular movie it feels like the kind of thing that i don't really see all that often even though there are you're right swaths of this movie 
um, and not just the fact that it's got Riley Keough in both, that you can trace you know, upward into Zola as well. What I, I love about Andrea Arnold in particular is she is great at looking at people who live on the outskirts of society and bringing a warmth to them that they already have, but that aren't often allowed in cinema. Yeah. Um, usually the kind of characters that she depicts are usually either judged or pitied. Yeah, right? they're, they're working class or lower as well. Mm-hmm. She just allows them humanity. And yep. and I, I love that about her as a filmmaker. It's it's funny. The only pity I have on, on Andrew Arnold is that her filmography is not nearly long enough for somebody who is yeah, talented. Like five movies or something. I'm like, yeah. make more. Uh, yeah, I demand please. it. Come on. Work work I'll, faster, Miss Arnold. She's uh, got she's got a documentary about a cow, apparently. premiered at Sundance. I can't wait to see it. I will watch it. I'm there. That sounds sounds amazing. My other uh, film that I I would select as another side is a movie I saw for the first time earlier this year. You know, just like most people these days, I share my uh, streaming platforms with other people. Um, You know, like, let's be honest, folks, we're all doing this. And I happened to click in as somebody else when I was signing into Criterion, and I saw what they were watching, and I had never heard of it before. So I was like, okay, I'll just kind of circle that and come back to it. It looks interesting. And I don't know what I really expected this documentary to be, but it was far more fascinating. Um, have you seen a documentary from 2018 by Layla Weinrub called Shakedown? Yes. Yes, this I have. This documentary Shakedown. is amazing. It premiered in the U.S. on Pornhub. <laughs> of course it did. It was, it was Pornhub's very first foray into non-porn on their platform. The, I remember the press release very vividly. It was going to premiere on Pornhub. I've followed by a, a, a second premiere on the Criterion Channel, and it was like, bless. Yeah. You know, a movie that is at a pl- it is at such an interesting subsect of of topics and yeah. format that it it fits for both the Pornhub audience and the Criterion Channel audience. You know that that's a singular movie. Yeah, and and like you know, don't be dissuaded by the fact that Pornhub created it because the, well, the fact is that there is. Plenty well, they of, didn't create it. They just gave they, it a platform. A, a platform, yeah. Gave it a platform. Thank you for the clarity. That's that, that's a distinction that we should be very <laughs> clear about. Um, because you know, while there is plenty of nudity and plenty of booty shaking and uh, and some sexual acts within this movie, it's not again kind of like Zola. It's not that kind of movie. It wants to take a long, hard look of this culture in Los Angeles that. Uh, you know, I don't think has ever been depicted on film, or maybe I'm just being naive, and it has been, and I just haven't seen it. But it certainly hasn't really been explored. And you know, it's it's a it's a scene of um, lesbian underground clubs featuring like go-go dancers and strippers um, who are there. You know, you we're all generally used to uh, uh, strippers and exotic dancers and exotic performers being then there to mostly titillate the opposite sex this is something very different this is a a, a, you know a scene a club uh culture that is there to um appeal to uh, people of the same gender same sex and same sexual identity they're pretty much doing it for the love of the game there's not a lot of money in it Some of them are doing it because it's the only channel that really exists to to have have these desires and have these outlets come to life, and there's there's a lot jammed into this really short thing that I'm not nearly doing 
near enough a good job of trying to articulate, but it's just, it's an amazing little documentary. What's, what's wonderful about it is that it shows um, not just a side of, of stripping that is not thought about, you know, mm-hmm. the LGBTQ side of, of it all, but it's not just men liking women or right. women liking men. Like right. there's a whole spectrum in there and you don't think about the fact that there are clubs that, that are for that. But what's particularly great about this club is because it's this kind of underground kind of grungy place, it isn't even the kind of bodies that you expect. No, and no. It, it really does a lot to dispel what a, what a lesbian looks like mm-hmm. and what a lesbian is interested in and yeah. what turns lesbians on. It is so revolutionary. And it reminds me of, there's a, there's a club in Atlanta that I actually lived down the street from, but I only managed to go once. Um, <laughs> I love called the story the, called already. The, called the Claremont Lounge. I, I went on my, oh, I didn't want to go by myself. So I went on my birthday so that um, I forced people to go with me because it's like, it's my birthday. The Claremont Lounge is, you can like Google it, is a notorious um, like big boy from Outcast put it on his list of like must do things in Atlanta. Most of the dancers are over the age of 40. Most of the dancers have bodies that you would not expect, but they they do their craft really well. There's one very particular woman named Blondie who can crush, literally crush anything in her cleavage um, and does. People have to buy the dances for them. So they have to like convince people to buy songs for them, for them to dance. It's the whole thing. Um, It's very grungy. It is an Atlanta institution. It's amazing. I'm very glad that I went. And watching this documentary, it felt very similar in the in the vibe of it and the body positivity of it all and the just the fact that porn in particular and to some extent stripping does a a lot of harm in the kind of perfection that it demands in bodies Mm -hmm. and the kind of shapes that are quote-unquote idealized right um and and documentaries like like shakedown not just subvert what you think about who sex acts are for but also what is sexy and yeah. what what about human bodies is sexy and and frankly it is it's just the human body that's great and mm-hmm. and we shouldn't have idealized forms and i i have been on record saying that for a very long time because bodies are great there's a video on youtube with called um history of cool where i'm talking about this exact same thing and it's that's from like eight years ago so um, I have receipts i just think <laughs> that the human body is is fascinating and we're still in a, a phase in, in society where we're slowly accepting that like all bodies are wonderful. <laughs> and right. We've been fighting for like 200, 300 years now against advertising. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Advertising has just so messed up our psyches because most people ne- have never looked like these idealized things. And painters knew that if you go back even 200 years ago, like, who were they painting? They weren't painting idealized versions of things. They were painting just bodies because they, yeah. those painters knew. And this documentary does a, a, just a wonderful job of, of showcasing that. And just to, to tie this off and to kind of tie it back to Zola and to tie, to tie it back to a lot of what Mariah and I have talked about over the years, if you've gone through any of those other Oscar episodes or the, the other uh, times that I've, I've been lucky enough to have her on the show is... Um, it matters the the different voices that we allow a chance at the mic and to tell their story and the story of women of color having these underground strip clubs um, in in a largely LGBTQ capacity. It's it's not something 
brand new. Like I promise you, nobody woke up three years ago and said, we should start running these clubs. These are the kinds of things that have been going on for a long, long, long time, but it's taken this long to have that captured on film and put out there for other people to see themselves either as like, as you say, the, the, the beautiful person on the stage, whatever their body happens to be, or the person who's attracted to that body, whatever it happens to be, you know, like it's, it's, it's really important that storytellers like Lila Weinrub and Andrea Arnold and Janixa are able to start telling their stories and getting it out and having their chance at the mic. That has been my ethos for a very long time. We're in such a better place because so many different stories are are finally getting, not just being told, but are being told on, on platforms that are much larger than they've ever been at. And, yeah. and I think that that's what we should be focusing on. We shouldn't be focusing on on the the other aspects it's just like what do we have and how is it so much better yeah no i I totally agree and um and we're all richer for it and and the fact that we can access them so much easier than we could before like you don't need to live in a major market and find that one art house that happens to be playing zola you know it it, it's going to show up on these various platforms in a very short window and that's going to help people find different stories and better stories and stories from voices that they haven't heard to death and and you know maybe understand the world a little bit better because of it um that it's, is it's exciting times exciting times very much absolutely that is episode 266 of the matinee cast i am so deeply thankful for mariah for coming by and talking about this movie with me come on back on monday august 9th for episode 267 speaking of excited we're finally going to be discussing the green night people the time has come mariah's writing can be found um as mentioned off the top of the show um movie phone um rogerhebert.com and and um, the playlist. What do you got coming up that people can look for? <laughs> Maybe tomorrow, because it was supposed to go up sometime this week. I wrote a piece. It's it's a lot, but um, I was looking at the history of, of denim jeans and cinema for Letterboxd. Cool. Nice. You are living um, the dream, Miss Gates, let me tell you. It's pretty good. And then um, I have a handful of, of women I'm hoping to interview um, for my column. There's a really great documentary coming out, um, I think, the week or two after this drops called Under the Volcano that is about George Martin's recording studio in um, um, Montserrat that was near an active volcano. And it was first, so first Montserrat gets like depleted by a hurricane. And then five years later, the volcano destroyed the whole island and they haven't been able to go back to the, um, like his studios in the like dead zone. So it's just abandoned there. So, but the story is about all of the different, um, albums that were recorded there if people aren't already following you on twitter where can they find you um i am at old films flicker follow this feed people there's records there's plums there's lots of great writing it's a lot of cat photos a lot of cat photos david lynch (laughs) say hello to you every morning it's great stuff my site which is not nearly full of as much great stuff is thematinee.ca the more audio content you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting you can also find them in um, all sorts of places. Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google, uh, Apple, Blueberry, um, Pocket Cast, Podchaser. There's a whole bunch. Um, uh, if, if, you, if you don't have my feed on whatever platform you use, let me know. I'll put it there. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when your episodes drop. Feedback on zola can be left in the comment section of the site you can email ryan at the matinee.ca on twitter i am matinee underscore ca and there's always facebook facebook.com slash dark matinee 
Any final thoughts and skates? I actually forgot one other thing that's probably more relevant for your listeners because you're about to do a Green Knight episode is I, I have two pieces about the Green Knight. One is tracing the um, way that Arthurian legends actually started out as Wel- Welsh myth- pagan Welsh mythology okay. and how it became the Arthurian romances that we know today. Hmm. Um, Nerdist, and then I'm also writing a, a listicle of like lesser known Arthurian films. So if you like watch The Green Knight and you're real hyped on it, and you're like, I, got, I gotta get more roundtable content, like I, I got you. Links. So, there will be links those, for these. Those will be coming as they publish. I will keep adding. Just look for this. This there's going to be a lot of links in this in the show notes. So uh, click away to your heart's content. For Mariah, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee. Talk about-